Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. All right, you guys ready to talk about the mark of the beast? Let's pause. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this evening. We're grateful for the ability to look at these scriptures, Lord, this passage we're in tonight. And I do pray, Lord, that it would be helpful to us, Lord, in our relationship with you, that even though these are heavy subjects, Lord, that there is something powerful you are trying to communicate through them. And I pray I would be able to really declare those things clearly and that we would be able to receive what you do have for us tonight from this chapter. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. And we bless your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Now, it's hard to keep going back over, but we have to kind of remember where we are, especially chapters 1 through 11. We've kind of gone through this process of the seven different plagues, the bulls, the trumpets, all these things that John was kind of layering on top of one another. And at the end of chapter 11, it almost seems like the book of Revelation could have ended with you know God conquering and triumphing and the saints coming out victorious. But then chapter 12, we see a great sign appeared. There was the woman who we uh, believe represents uh, the completion of Israel, what Israel is supposed to be. We saw that the Messiah, the baby, was taken up, but then the dragon was hurled down to earth and started bringing about this persecution to the followers of Christ. And these chapters look into why the church is suffering and how God is working in a different level than the previous chapters did. But just as those seals were opened and we saw the different things that came and the different plagues that took place and the persecution that took place, we're now seeing things take place in in a different uh, light. Chapter 3, we saw a serpent. Chapter 12, we see a dragon. But really, we're dealing with the same character. We're, We're dealing with the devil. We're dealing with Satan. We're dealing with the one who is opposing God, opposing the work of God, and opposing the church. And here, in chapter 13, verse 1, we see... What happens after the dragon is declaring war against the children 
of God, the, the followers of Christ. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Now remember in chapter 12, we saw an enormous dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its head. This seems to be a continuation symbol <clears throat> or maybe some type of offspring from the beast in chapter 12. But it's repeating these things, and so we know that this is a continuation of what took place with the beast or with the dragon as this beast comes out of the sea. Verse 2. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast? Who can rage war against it? <clears throat> now, this is very similar to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, there are four monsters that come up out of the sea. The first is a winged lion. The second is a bear with three ribs or tusks coming out of its mouth. The third is a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then comes this fourth beast that's greater and more terrible with iron teeth and bronze claws. And it has ten horns with a further little horn growing up beside them. The interpretation there in Daniel is clear that these monsters represent four kingdoms. And the fourth of which in particular will become a great and brutal world empire. The horns represent different kings, and the last one of whom will make war against God's people and blaspheme God himself. And so John is taking what Daniel has done, and he's bringing it here. And as he takes this passage from Daniel chapter 7 and has it in mind, remember, the people aren't looking for actual monsters, to come up out of the sea, they understood that they were symbols. And it seems as if John has combined the four monsters of Daniel into one. There's part leopard, there's part bear, there's part lion with ten horns, seven heads. The monster is Rome. It is the culmination of what these monsters represented and now is being identified here, or even more so than Rome, it's the dark power of the pagan empire crushing everything in its path, blaspheming other gods who get in the way so that it alone and the dragon that is given it its power will be worshipped. Now remember in chapter 2, Pergamum, was described where Satan has his throne. And that was the center of the imperial rule. Right, So Pergamum was where Rome had set up rule, and there it is represented as the place where Satan has this throne. John sees behind the visible 
things that are taking place in this empire, the Roman Empire, and in the Rome, in, in the empires that have preceded this. And he's seeing the dark spiritual reality behind the empire. Though Rome is the only obvious monster in the first century, it was the great superpower of that time. There have been many monsters like Rome afterwards, just like there were before Rome prior. And really, we are looking at the dragon that is giving power to these beasts. And we saw that this was the serpent. We saw that this was Satan. We saw that this was the devil. We saw that there is a dark force behind the driving force, if you will, of the evils that take place in this nation. In verse 3, where it says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound has been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. There are a couple of different possible meanings to this. One is that it recalls the prophecy of Genesis about the serpent and the woman where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. The beast from the sea has the wounds prophesied, or it seems to be, from that text in Genesis. There could be something more here than the war in heaven and between the dragon and the woman from chapter 12. The beast's wounded head could refer to the previous encounter between the lamb and the beast, possibly referring to Christ's death on the cross, both the lamb and the beast were slaughtered, so to speak, or slain. And in that encounter, both are still alive. Christ resurrected and the beast, even though defeated at the cross, still maintains some form of life, each in their own way having a victory if you call it that, or conquering or overcoming. The second possible interpretation that I lean more towards, and it's a little bit more historically involved, it's a little bit more um, complicated in trying to follow, but after Nero's death in 69 AD, there easily could have been what looked like a mortal wound to Rome. Nero was the great emperor, great power, and it could have been after his death that this monstrous system was going to fall apart. There were four would-be emperors in succession that were marching on Rome, killing their enemies, claiming the crown, and then, except for the last one, being killed in turn by the next army to arrive. There was Galba, Otho, and Vitalius came and went. Vaspian came and he stayed, but within months his son and heir, Titus, completed the military task on which Vaspian had been engaged before his troops encouraged him to go further. And Titus' legion destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, burning the temple to the ground and to many observers, it seemed like the end of the world, right? This is it. This is the end. Jerusalem has been totally annihilate, annihilated. 
Titus has usurped this rule and this power now. And while this was happening, rumors were going around that Nero hadn't actually died. Or he did die, but had come back to life. A few people claimed that to be Nero, and to be Nero kind of alive again, even as some people, you know, will say, yes, I am Christ return, you know, and it's some guy who comes and says, yes, I am, you know, the Messiah returned, and it wasn't true. And the same thing here. A lot of people claim to be Nero alive again, but that didn't last. But there was a saying found in Roman writings about Nero. It was, he was, is not, but is to come which we see in chapter 17, verse 8, referring to the beast once again. So this idea of he was, is not, but is to come was a reoccurring theme placed about Nero, and we see about the beast as well. And so there seems to be a connection with this and with Nero. And so the central important feature which all his readers would have recognized at once, is that the monster claimed worship. The monster demanded worship and shared that worship with the dark pagan gods of that time. A look at Roman coins at that time, and you could easily see that this was one emperor after another claiming to be the son of God. Right, And they would be dressed in the proper attire, that of divinity. And once the emperor became God, there's no room for other gods. And so they ruled with this iron fist. They ruled with this authority. Now, it's all right for the local people to have their own gods as long as they offer worship to Caesar, to this God. And so the Christians knew that this would be a problem, that there would be a collision between this Roman emperor claiming to be the son of God, to be worshipped as a God. Oh, you can worship your Jesus, but you first and also have to worship this God. And so this is going to cause a lot of problems. If one refuses, as the Christians knew that they would, then a collision course is set. And like Daniel and his friends there in the book of Daniel, all the world seemed to be worshiping the monster, seemed to be worshiping Babylon and the image that was set up there. Only the faithful few, here described in terms of their names being in the Lamb's Book of Life, refuse to do so. And so here we have the Roman rule. We have Nero. We have those who come after Nero. We have the thought of what Nero represented. We have the thought of what Rome represents. And all those emperors who call themselves the Son of God in conflict with these Christians who believe Jesus is the Son of God. And now that terminology, Son of God, becomes more than just a religious one. It becomes a political one. 
something that Rome was using, something that Christians were using, and there was a conflict here. In verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Verse 9 is a powerful and a sober reminder to those who are following Christ Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This is really continuing what we saw in chapter 11 with 144,000, those witnesses. It's a sober reminder of the reality that they were living in. Faithful witnesses unto death is how the Lamb wins the victory and how God's kingdom replaces this monstrous kingdom. John is painting a large and dark picture for the small and local churches and what they're going to go through and the struggles that they find themselves in. And it's hard for us to imagine how serious Christian faith really is until we see the picture of the dragon and the beast and how horrific they are. And we say, wow, this seems kind of extreme. And then realize that those who are following Jesus at that time did not think this is extreme but thought this a picture that painted their life, right? It's kind of like people who, you know, go and see a movie about the killing fields in Cambodia, and we think, oh, that's terrible, but if someone survived that, it's not just terrible, it's a reality, right? You have someone who's gone through an experience or maybe that of war, even like the Vietnam War. You see movies of it and you say, oh, yeah, that's terrible. But those who've been through that, they have horror about that, right? It strikes something much deeper. Same thing is happening here. That early followers of Christ, hearing these things, understanding Rome, understanding the problems that are going on here, these things that are being presented in this horrific way connected to Daniel and Babylon and what happened in Babylon, they find themselves in the same situation. To them, it's not that strange. To us, it seems like this is so bizarre. To them, it is, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I, I know who this power is that people are worshiping. Because remember, temples are being built for Caesar all over the place. It is growing. It is conquering the whole world, every tribe, every nation. Rome, that is claiming this authority, and Caesar, who calls himself the son of God, seems to be the winning ticket. These poor Christians, what do you do? We believe in Jesus. 
Here's Rome slaughtering us, annihilating us. Jerusalem is leveled. Here's a beast. Here are, it, it is coming out and conquering all these things. Verse 11, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it is given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth and ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all the people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. When you go to Disneyland, how's that for a segue? And you go down Main Street, I can remember from being a kid to still seeing all the little, you know, stores and windows up top and you hear like they have some recordings going on as if someone's playing a piano and stuff, as if there's something actually taking place there. But it's just a facade, right? It's just something that is an image. It's not a reality. And so this facade that looks like a, a real house or dwelling place is pretend. It's not the real thing. I always wonder, does anyone live up there? What is up there? You know, and, and it's just it's just a front, right? It's a facade. And we see that this second beast had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It's trying to look like what it isn't. It's trying to copy Christ, even the death and the resurrection, right? It's trying to assimilate what Jesus was. It's trying to represent what Jesus actually is. And there is quickly developing a divide between people who accepted in the community, who were accepted in the community and those who weren't based on what they worshiped. And so here there is power being given to this authority, right? We have this government rule that we see coming up out of the sea, this first beast with all its power. And then we see it giving power to the second beast, which is kind of the economic rule that has the ability to control how money is being spent and how things are being purchased and whether people are able to do any of those things. And with this divide between who you worship or not, we see that there's going to be times where the officials made requirements that unless you offered the required sacrifices, 
you're not allowed into the markets. You can't come into this marketplace until you first pay homage and worship to Caesar. And if you don't, you can't come in here, you can't sell your stuff, and you can't buy things here unless you make that homage. And sometimes it would be to a place where if you would offer a sacrifice, then they would mark that you took or made that sacrifice. Maybe put some ash on your hand or your forehead, kind of like Disneyland where they put the stamp and you get to come in or reenter or a club or something where you get that stamp that lets you know, okay, I paid the dues, I'm able to be here. It's similar to getting back into this place or this marketplace. If you made the proper sacrifice... Christians were faced with a stark alternative. Stay true to the lamb and risk losing your livelihood, the ability to sell or to buy or make this sacrifice. What do we do? And any kind of dissent, even though a nonviolent one as the Christian church was, in Rome's eyes was intolerable. And so here are this growing number of followers of Jesus who are no longer wanting or willing to make the sacrifice to Caesar. And it's not going to be tolerated. Now imagine the difficulties at that time in that culture. Do I compromise or is it a compromise to use Caesar's coins even though they say son of God on them? Is it blaspheming to have to buy something with a coin that has something blasphemous on it? Or is it a compromise if I put my you know, booth out to sell goods to people who are going to the temple to worship Caesar, who they call the son of God? And I'm selling them things so that they could go and do their worship. I'm selling them meat or something that they will then offer as a sacrifice. Am I contributing to that worship? Or what if I buy meat from someone that I know has been worshipped to one of these pagan gods? Am I partaking of that worship? which we see Paul addressing in one of his epistles in the Corinthians. And so we can see this struggle that's taking place going on. And that same struggle can take place with us, right? I think it does in many places. Can I buy a newspaper or magazine that supports something that I'm in opposition to and all I want to do is read the sports page? But this, you know, company supports something that I don't support. Or can I work for a company that's selling clothes that are made by children in sweatshops? Right? Or can I bank at a bank that has investments in Latin America that is basically enslaving people to work for them so that they can make a profit, and yet it's where I bank? Now... The reality is I think most Christians don't even think this far. We don't labor with these things because we don't even know these things. And it's almost like these things are kept from us. I don't know where Target gets its clothes. I don't know where H&M gets its clothes. 
I have to search. It's almost like there's this blindingness that's behind the scenes. There's this darkness behind the scenes where all these things are taking place. And if you want, you know, to really say I'm for children, you know, I really support children. I'm for children. It's not just are you against abortion, which is down in numbers since before Roe v. Wade. It's are you supporting sweatshops that are using children for child labor and it's at your local store because you can get four shirts for 12 bucks. You see, how do we fit in this system? And it's a difficult thing because what we're seeing here with the beasts that come out of the sea and the one that comes out of the land is the powers that control the way the world is being run. The military government and the economic systems that are deciding how things go and when they're going in contrast to the kingdom of God and the children of God are dissenting on that saying, I will not be a part of this, then what's the government going to do? What's the power going to do? With Rome, it was the sword. They are going to crush you. They are going to force you into starvation. They will put you in a place where you have one choice, either worship them, well, actually two choices, or die. Right? And so that's the place where they are at. And that descent is not taken lightly. It's not taken easily. The number of the beast, again, is really an imitation. <clears throat> it's like a parody. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. You see, the law of God was to be on our hands and on our foreheads. And here is this imposter that is doing the same thing is causing worship to be on the hand, on the forehead. It's there as a representation. If you were to write Nero, Caesar, and Beast in Hebrew, each one of them amounts to 666. Okay? If you were to write Nero, Caesar, and Beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. The Beast is almost certainly Nero. Referring to that. Referring to that kingdom, referring to what it represents, referring to what the struggle was between the government, the power, the economic power, and these followers of Christ that could not sell or buy unless they paid homage to this Caesar, this beast. But this isn't just about Caesar, and this isn't just about what's happening there. <clears throat> just like what happened in Daniel with Babylon, 
This is a reoccurring theme. The nation had become a beast, become a military brute, an economic force demanding allegiance. It happened again with the Persians. It happened with Greece. It's happening here with Rome. It's happened throughout history. It's happened in China. It's happened in Cambodia. Anytime a government takes a power and wields that power both in military force and in economic force to take control of how people will live and worship, it's a beast. And it can be represented there. This is definitely representing what is happening at that time. John is writing to the people in that first century, and Rome is the power, and Nero is the representative of that power at that time. This really is a contrast between the world powers, the world kingdoms, and the kingdom of God. And which one will you pay homage to and trust? The example the kingdom of God has is a lamb that was slain. It is Christ who told Peter, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then there is the power of Rome that took up the sword and slew all those Christians. And so which power will you trust in? Where will you put your faith? Will it be in the world and how much you can get? Or will it be in Christ and the character in which we're to live? And this isn't a light decision. It isn't an easy decision. And it's one that I struggle with today. Oh, I'm not sacrificing to idols and I'm not doing you know, incense to Caesar or some other gods. But where does my money go? What are the things that I am invested in? How much of those things are just a consumer mentality? Right? And and so this becomes a very convicting thing. Even though we're not in a black and white situation that maybe the early Christians were in, there are a lot of parallels that we have to look at and say, what is my role here to represent kingdom of God what will I invest my time in what am I going to devote myself to right is it again the power and success or is it the love and people because these things are in contrast, Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You will either love one and hate the other. You will cling to one and despise the other. Who are we going to serve? And the early church found themselves in a literal place where this was happening. If I'm going to make a living and it not be 
extremely difficult, then I have to pay homage and worship to this other son of God. I have to receive that mark. And so this is the place where they're finding themselves in and the contrast is becoming more and more stark. And we'll see how that even increases in the next chapter. The early church, a large number of them stood their ground and would not compromise and were martyred and paved the way for the freedom that they would later have. Freedom is always built by the blood of others. Right? And so we see it here happening in the church. So that's chapter 13. Any questions or thoughts? I suppose there can be a correlation, right? If if your you know, existence is committed to something that is contrary to um, the kingdom of God, but not necessarily or automatically. You know, I think we've talked about this before. Um, what if you get the chip in your left hand, not your right hand? Is that still... What if you didn't know it was you know, connected to something evil. Is God going to judge you for your ignorance? And so I think there's something more being taken. I don't think there's a problem, actually, with, you know, putting a chip in your pet so that you can find them. And even could be with children, right? If it's a safety thing, it's going to keep the kids safe. It doesn't seem like a bad thing. We do it with our cars without a problem. All of a sudden, is it different with our kids? I don't know that this is speaking to that. I really don't. I think it's speaking to something much more. And the bottom line is I, I am going to trust the character of God. When I interpret scripture, I need to do what Jesus told the Pharisees to do. You know, he told them, you search the scriptures, and in that you think you have eternal life, but they are that which speak of me. In other words, if you want to know what they say, look at me, because I'm the clear revelation to what God was saying. I think we need to do that with the New Testament, too. So when I read the New Testament, I have to look at it in light of the character of Christ. Christ said, if you, your father, if your son asks you for bread, would you give him a stone? If they ask you for fish, would you give him a serpent? If you, them being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give the spirit to those who ask? I don't think God is going to judge us because we made a bad decision or an ignorant decision. I don't think God is going to condemn to hell someone who thought, well, I wanted to make sure my child wasn't kidnapped, so I put a chip in, and, and now their child is going to hell for all eternity. Right? That doesn't strike me like Jesus. And, and so I will interpret this based on the character of Christ. And based on what we know here and what he's speaking of, I don't think he's talking about chips. I think he's talking about identification with that. I think he's talking about worshiping. I think he's talking about a determined, a determined compromise to worship this system and what it represents 
over the living God for the sake of ease, for the sake of my ability to live my life. Yeah, I've heard that. I don't think that that's what he's talking about. I think he's referring to Daniel. I think it would be referring to Babylon during to Persia. I think it would be dealing with those things that were there. And I think that he's combining everything that Daniel did and bringing him there because all those things were in Daniel. All those beasts were in Daniel chapter 7. They're just combined here into this one. And so um, I, I think... You know, wanting to see these powers that be, you know, um, yeah, I can understand that and significance. Yeah, remember there's a dragon behind the beast that's really the one pulling the strings. There's the dark force that these things are just representing, right? And so any country that is darkened by the things that they do or influenced by this evil you know, dragon, serpent, devil, Satan, um, they all fall into these categories, right? And then it doesn't mean that every powerful nation, you know, so many of the things I was reading, I was kind of getting dizzy, um, just talking about all the, you know, it represents this, it represents this, and they always ended up it represents America because we're the last strong power right now, right? And so it's like, well, there might be elements of darkness in the United States, there definitely are, right? There's definitely things that aren't just here. There's things that aren't right here. But I don't think it's cut and dry that all of America is bad or all of, you know, this country is bad. I I think it really has to do with how and what you're committing yourself to and worshiping. And if that nation, you're committed to something that is, you know, For example, if it was in uh, pornography, you're making millions of dollars out of pornography using people in this way, then, yeah, that's a darkened thing, right? That's something that would fall into a place where your money, your income is being serviced by this dark area. What are you worshiping? You know, are you willing to give, you know, your allegiance to something that is this so that you can make a profit because the money's good? You know, those kinds of questions, I think, are, are what come up. You know, those kinds of things. Um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, some of the YouTube stars, right? These people are making bank, and they're like, nonsense, right? Well, a- exactly. Well, again, some of these things, yeah, I mean, so we have to, I mean, I don't think it's like, okay, so all YouTube is bad, right? But I think that there is definitely um, something to say about the, the things that are driving money, right? This economic thing, people are doing anything for money, right? They're being absurd for money. They're being, you know, uh, blasphemous for money. They're being obscene for money. Anything I can do to get money and to get power, I think that's part of this kind of system, right? This economic... Well, that's where... Yeah, I mean, the audience... And so, again, we're, like I said earlier, what do you do if you have to buy meat but it was offered to an idol, right? Paul said, well, I know an idol's nothing. So, it's like... 
there are certain lines that are, well, am I crossing the line? Because if I buy this meat, I'm supporting the worship of this, right? But I have to eat. So how do I live, right? And it wasn't, uh, yeah, just do this, just do that. It was a difficult thing that they struggled with. Well, I, I think it's similar to those things. In other words, I, I think that there is the economy that we're living in that we need, right, that has all these other things attached to it. And we're having to maneuver our way on what we entrust and what we don't. You know, Amazon, like not everything on Amazon is good, right? Amazon sells books and things that are, you know, bad. And that's why I was asking, like, would it be considered a subtle way or could it have been considered a subtle way at that time to buy meat sacrificed to an idol? You know what I mean? It's like they didn't have TV or the things that we might subtly give ourselves to, but would that be considered a subtle way of giving yourself to those things? And, and so I, I think there's a lot of nuances to that. I don't think it's just like, oh, yeah, all this is bad. Right, all TV is bad, or all movies are bad, or all books are bad, or you know what I'm saying? It's like there's nuances to these things, or all things on YouTube are bad. Well, no, that Bible Project, and there's a lot of good things on there too, right? There's there's just this underlying drive that we have to be aware of that there is a a battle that's taking place, and and it is pretty, you know extreme one is again self-serving self you know grandizing the other is self-sacrificing and serving you know one is caring about what god cares about the other is caring about what just this world cares about or as like john says first john says you know love not the world the things in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life aren't from god you know all those characteristics we could see in these situations you know this power, this wanting, that's a prideful thing, wanting to control. I think that can be identified in this dark, you know, region. Yeah, when there's a revelation, you have to decide what you do with that revelation, right? When something is made where, I mean, the whole thing's happening, right, with Nike right now, with that, you know, people are burning their Nikes because, you know, that one slogan, you know, it's like... If you're not willing to do something, or if you're willing to sacrifice everything, right? And it's got the football uh, player who didn't bow or bow to the, yeah. And so people are making a statement. They're saying, yes, I support, or no, I don't support, right? They're, it's connected to something more, you know? And, and this is along those lines, but even deeper, right? This isn't just about, you know, uh, you know buying shoes or a national slogan. This is about humanity, you know, and again, they're connected. You know, again, we talked about this last week. National pride um, is very blinding, right? It doesn't matter what country you're in, you support your country, right? And it's something that you start to, you know, develop. And there's a lot going on that, you know, you're not aware of if you are not in a mindset to see those things, you know. And, and so sometimes, it's a difficult thing to get past that national pride um, if it's in contrast, you know, to things that 
the kingdom of God is supposed to be a part, and you have to choose one. Even as we mentioned, what do you put on top of a flagpole, the Christian flag or the American flag? You know, I don't think a flag is anything, but which means more to you, right? And if you put a Christian flag, then people who are very patriotic will say, no, it's country. You've got to put country first, and then Christians say, oh, no, you've got to put God first, right? And the whole idea is not the flag, but what do you put first? Is it your country, or is it what God wants? What happens if your country goes south? And that's why the whole argument of yeah, if you're not for Israel, you're not for God. It's like God wasn't always for Israel, right? I mean, that when God said that to you know Abraham, after that he rejected Israel a whole bunch of times, you know. So if God can do that, why can't I? You know, if God's saying no, what you're doing is wrong, I should be able to say no, what you're doing is wrong. Right? It's like, I'm not going to just stand behind them because they're Israel. I have to stand behind them because what they're doing represents the kingdom of God. Same thing with America. Same thing with any nation. Right? And, and now it's so complicated. You know, we're involved in so many things. Some things could be really good and some things could be really just for profit. Now what do we do? I support this but not that. You know? And it's like, they're both my country. You know, we're doing humanitarian work here and we're doing work here that I don't know what it's connected to. Did we think it would be easy? But don't you think, in spite of all this confusion and tangled web, that if there is this thread of humanity that is connected to the ideology of Christ and the kingdom of God, that even though it makes some of the wrong choices and decisions at some place, it drives them enough to still push them forward in a healthy way. In other words, when they see the injustice, like you became aware of the brands and different things, you said, okay, no more. And if enough people come to that road where they see that and they say, oh, no more, right? 20 years, not even 20 years, 10 years ago probably, no one was talking about brands, no one was caring about some of these things, and now it's awareness, right? Same thing with the, you know, human trafficking. 20 years ago, I don't think I even knew human trafficking was taking place. And all of a sudden, it's a reality, and it's happening, and there's more and more people being aware of it and making people aware of it, and a lot of them aren't even Christian, right? But there's a movement that's going on where the things that represent the kingdom of God are pushing forward. And there is more of awareness. And I think as that continues, things will have to start claiming sides. You know, if, if enough people say, I'm not going to buy this brand because of where they're, you know, getting the product, that brand will have to say, okay, we, we're going to stop, right? It'll be interesting to see what Nike does because their stock went down, Right. And so if the stock goes down, are you going to follow the money or are you following what you believe is a statement that you needed to make? See, if enough people are willing to follow that ideology of the kingdom of God and not the prophet, that's when you start. And that's, I think, what John is dealing with here. Well, I mean, whoever has ears, let him hear. I, I think he's. that's always a, a call to deal with what's being said yeah it's like you know 
listen to what I'm telling you here. This is important. It's kind of that. And then I think the understanding, uh, calculate the number of the beast, I, I think what he's trying to do is bring an attention to the system that is taking place and just pointing it out. Again, I don't think the people reading this had anything but Rome and uh, Caesar in mind. I think to them they was like, yep, we knew it. You know, because there wasn't anything else. You know, there wasn't Russia. There wasn't, you know, the Tsar. There wasn't the Middle East. All there was was Rome. All there was was Caesar, who is the son of God, right? This contrast. And so I think to them it was really clear. And I, I think, you know, again, we want it to be present day. And so we find things that correlate with our time and we identify with those things. But I think the correlations we need to find are probably more the moral ones, you know, that are taking place than just the symbolisms, if that makes sense. And again, this is, again, there's, there's a million things out there. I didn't read them all. I'd start reading something. I'd go, okay, this is going that way, right? I'd read something. i go, okay, that's kind of going that way. And so, you know, I had a... I'm trying to stick to the historicity of what's happening, right? What was he saying to these people? Because that's going to be probably the most accurate application to me. And as soon as someone started going, well, you know, here we have this, and and he's talking 2,000 years later, I'm like, okay, how did you get from here to here, right? That's a big jump. I was talking to a friend Brian yesterday and he was telling me about somebody who had all these theories and different things and I was sharing him that I think a lot of times with you know not all the time but a lot of times with some of the conspiracy things and the theories that we have they're distractions they're distractions to keep us from dealing with what we have to do you know, because sometimes what we have to do is difficult. It's hard and it isn't clear. And I have to wrestle with it. And so it's easier to make a distraction that keeps things away from me. You know, it's like, oh, it's this and it's that government and it's this here and it's that here and it's this, you know, whatever it is. But it's like, well, what about you and what about the brands and the things like that? <laughs> <laughs> But the reality, even though it's not sensational, it is very heavy. Yeah. You know, what he's talking about and how he's presenting it is, and the way, the reason he's presenting it as beasts and in this elaborate, imaginative way is because of how heavy it is. You know, it, it is meant to make us think of horror, it is meant to bring nightmares because it was. Right, it was that kind of a nightmare thing, and it's happened throughout history. You know, there's been time and time again where Christians have suffered incredibly, just like they did, you know, in the first century for their faith, and it's happening today. You know, it's something that continues, and so it's not sensational, but it's heavy. You know, and it's powerful, and it really is one of those things that makes us have to. Wow, you know, take a little breath. No, no, I understand what you're saying. I do, do but again, we, we go to sensational because of how it provokes us 
but you know the simplicity brings a little depth in the reality you know or it's meant to um and it, it's again it's one of those things that just we're so far removed from these things that it just hard to grasp hold of these things it's it's i think a lot of it has to do with where we were brought up in the church we were brought up in you know bring, being brought up in a pentecostal environment which is where the majority of us were you know calvary chapel is from a pentecostal uh denomination and so it comes with those kinds of things but there are a lot of people and you can find a lot who have held to these other positions it's not new i didn't make it up right i didn't come you know this is what i think it's this you know these are all things that i've read from different people who have been there and there's plenty of them out there but they're not as sensational well, because it is difficult. I mean, you know, a lot of this we are still speculating. We don't, because he doesn't say it's Nero, but it seems to point to all these things in light of what we do know. And the more we uncover about, you know, uh, what was said about people, like why they're, you know, like Nero, who was, not is, and is to come, like, what the heck does that mean? And here it is, right? Okay, I think it is Nero. If we didn't find the things that referred to Nero in that way, we wouldn't connect the dots. But now that those things come out, we say, oh, this is what he's talking about. You know, It, it is a money-making thing, or was, definitely still is. You know, I mean, the videos on YouTube have, you know, thousands and thousands of, you know, viewers watching it because it's, again, sensational, you know. No, I'm not trying to minimize the darkness. I'm I'm actually saying that the language he used was trying to bring attention to the darkness. Um, I'm not saying that that darkness doesn't exist now because it does. Even like I said, there's people still dying, giving their lives for Jesus today in horrific ways. Right? People are tortured. You know, people are put through extreme things just like they were here. And so the darkness is still present. But I also see that the light is still progressing. You know, and I think that that is something that they had to hold on to, right? You know, don't grow weary in doing good because at the end you will receive a crown of life. That's got to be our goal too, right? We're not going to give up just because it's difficult. We're not going to give up just because it's hard to live the right life and it's easier to live the wrong life. And it could be something simple like not lying in your sails or it could be something very life or death like them having to deal with am I going to sacrifice and offer to Caesar or not you know um, so I mean it goes to that extreme but I'm not minimizing darkness it's still just as dark and there's still the dragon you know and there's still the serpent it's still the enemy There, there's something underneath all of this that's driving there's a darkness that's there that's called the devil satan striver against god you know all these things are terminologies that are meant to think of an anti-god and that's why even the 666 is an anti-shema right the shema was what they did where they tied that on their hand and there is this is the anti-shema there is the anti-christ right these things are against what Jesus is doing. And there, even as John says in 1 John 2, there are many antichrists that have gone out into the world, right? There are a lot of things that are against Christ, right? And there still are. It still happens today just like it did then.
I mean, you think about the powers that run the world and how there is such a grab for power and control, right? I mean, it is just, it's a force that drives people to, to do the things that they do. Um, and there is another force that drives people as well. Bob Goff, most recent book, Everybody Always, he, he just strikes me as so counter everything in culture, right? Here is a successful lawyer, and every Wednesday he goes to Tom Sawyer Island and meets with people. You know, and he puts it in his books. If you want to meet with him, go to Tom Sawyer Island and you can meet with this author and, you know, uh, lawyer. And he'll meet with you there on Tom Sawyer Island every morning Wednesdays. His phone number is on his book. And he's selling like hotcakes, right? Who does that? It's so countercultural, right? Instead of I'm elite, I'm up here, you're down there. It's like, hey... This is it. And in that book, he tells, I won't give the whole book away, but he tells the story of how he um, is the first person or was a part of the first trial of a witch doctor. And I think it was Uganda, um, where the witch doctors would mutilate young children to use their body parts for different you know, potions and things. And no one was willing to take them to court because of fear. And because none of the kids lived, one of the children lived, a young boy who he came to know. And because of that, he said, would you testify against that? And he took a witch doctor to court and sentenced him to jail. First time ever in the country. Right. And it was just incredible. The story is just unbelievable. And then God tells him, you need to go talk to the witch doctor. And he hated this man for what he did to this boy. And he leads the witch doctor to Jesus. And it's just like, oh, man, what's going on here? This is just shaking all the things that I would hold on to off the table. And again, it's like, what's taking place here? It's against culture. Oh, he's got to be in jail. You can't do that to people and not be put away but God's extending himself to him right who does that God does that you know that's why the book's called everybody always you know and so that's the king that's what the kingdom of God looks like it doesn't give him a pass oh you can go no problem no he's in jail he died and all these things but in spite of how he felt there was something telling him you need to do this. And he did. Alright? It's a great book. If you get it, you should get that book. Everybody Always. Bob Goff. Yeah. He's got another book called Love Does. It's a bunch of short stories that he's involved with. He's got an amazing life. The guy's just like, yeah, incredible. But he's extended himself in these ways. One day I'm going to go to Disneyland and find him. Well, let's pray on that note. Lord, I do pray that, again, as we've gone through this chapter, that it will uh, have tugged at our hearts and have opened our eyes and our ears, that it would make us think. And, and Lord, I 
I'm not here to try and answer everybody's questions. Actually, I'd like there to be more questions, but I'd like the questions to lead us to you, to lead us to your character, to lead us to interpret everything we read through you, Christ. And I pray that we would do this in this chapter, that we would be mindful and aware of the world that we live in and the forces that are in this world. Lord, not looking for a demon behind every bush, but being aware as things come to light um, that there is a driving force that is anti-Christ. And there is the kingdom of God that is present and growing and developing. And may we always, Lord, be part of the building of your kingdom, however it takes shape in whatever form, in the smallest thing to the biggest things. Lord, may we identify with you. May we love like you. May we live for you. And we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.